0: black clock audio tales by going to the patreon link in the show notes thank you for listening rate review subscribe and tell your friends this month the month of may we are doing uh the space operas skylark of space and skylark 3 by ee e. smith thank you again for listening And for Radio Free Oleander, we'll be talking about Star Wars, or the Star Wars trilogy, or the Star Wars series, or Star Wars as a phenomena, this May. Check out our show notes for where to find us, where to subscribe, where to find out, where to find us on social media, where to suggest stuff, where to say, hey, I was listening to Dracula and there's a page missing that happened, and I fixed it. Black Clock Audio Tales. The month of May. Recording by Richard Kilmer.
1: Steel liberates energy, unexpectedly. Duquesne was in his laboratory, poring over an abstruse article in a foreign journal of science when Scott came breezily in with a newspaper in his hand, across the front page of which... "'stretched great headlines. "'Hello, Blackie,' he called. "'Come down to earth and listen to this tale of mystery "'from that world-renowned font of exactitude and authority, "'the Washington Clarion. "'Some miscreant has piled up "'and touched off a few thousand tons of TNT "'and picric acid up in the hills. "'Read about it. It's good.' Duquesne read MYSTERIOUS EXPLOSION MOUNTAIN VILLAGE WIPED OUT OF EXISTENCE TWO HUNDRED DEAD, NONE INJURED FORCE FELT ALL OVER WORLD CAUSE UNKNOWN SCIENTISTS BAFFLED HARPER'S FERRY, MARCH 26 AT 10.23 A.M. TODAY THE VILLAGE OF BANKERVILLE ABOUT 30 MILES NORTH OF THIS PLACE WAS TOTALLY DESTROYED BY AN EXPLOSION OF SUCH TERRIFIC VIOLENCE that seismographs all over the world recorded the shock, and that windows were shattered even in this city. A thick pall of dust and smoke was observed in the sky, and parties set out immediately. They found, instead of the little mountain village, nothing except an immense crater-like hole in the ground, some two miles in diameter, and variously estimated at from two to three thousand feet deep. No survivors have been found. No bodies have been recovered. The entire village, with its two hundred inhabitants, has been wiped out of existence. Not so much as a splinter of wood or a fragment of brick from any of the houses can be found. Scientists are unable to account for the terrific force of the explosion, which far exceeded that of the most violent explosive known. Hmm, that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? asked Duquesne sarcastically as he finished reading. "'It sure does,' replied Scott, grinning. "'What do you suppose it was? Think the reporter heard a tire blow out on Pennsylvania Avenue?' Perhaps. Nothing to it, anyway, as he turned back to his work. As soon as the visitor had gone, a sneering smile spread over Duquesne's face, and he picked up his telephone. The fool did it. "'That will cure him of sucking eggs,' he muttered. "'Operator? Duquesne speaking. "'I am expecting to call this afternoon. "'Please ask him to call me at my house. "'Thank you.' "'Fred,' he called to his helper. "'If anyone wants me, tell them that I have gone home.' He left the building and stepped into his car. In less than half an hour, he arrived at his house on Park Road, overlooking beautiful Rock Creek Park. Here he lived alone, save for an old-coloured couple who were his servants. In the busiest part of the afternoon, Chambers rushed unannounced into Brookings' private office. His face was white as chalk. "'Read that, Mr. Brookings,' he gasped, thrusting the clarion extra into his hand. Brookings read the news of the explosion, then looked at his chief chemist, his face turning gray. "'Yes, sir, that was our laboratory,' said Chambers dully. "'That fool! Didn't you tell him to work with small quantities?' "'I did. He said not to worry, that he was taking no chances, that he would never have more than a gram of copper on hand at once in the whole laboratory.' "'Well, I'll be damned!' Slowly turning to the telephone, Brookings called a number and asked for Dr. Duquesne, then called another. Brookings speaking, I would like to see you this afternoon. Will you be at home? I'll be there in about an hour. Goodbye. When Brookings arrived, he was shown into duquesne's study. The two men shook hands perfunctorily and sat down, the scientist waiting for the other to speak. Well, duquesne, you were right. Our man couldn't handle it. But of course, you didn't mean the terms you mentioned before. Duquesne's lips smiled. A hard, cold smile. You know what I said, Brookings. Those terms are now doubled. Twenty thousand and ten million. Nothing else goes. I expected it since you never backed down. The corporation expects to pay for its mistakes. We accept your terms. And I have contracts here for your services as research director at a salary of $240,000 per annum with the bonus and royalties you demand. Duquesne glanced over the documents and thrust them into his pocket. "'I'll go over these with my attorney tonight and mail one back to you if he approves the contract. In the meantime, we may as well get down to business.' "'What would you suggest?' asked Brookings. "'You people stole the solution, I see. "'Don't use such harsh language, doctor. It's—' "'Why not? I'm for direct action. First, last, and all the time.' The thing is too important to permit mincing of words or actions. It's a waste of time. Have you the solution here?' "'Yes, here it is,' drawing the bottle from his pocket. "'Where's the rest of it?' asked Duquesne, as he noted the size of the bottle. "'All that we found is here, except about a teaspoon, which the expert had to work on,' replied Brookings. "'We didn't get it all, only half of it. The rest of it was diluted with water.' so that it wouldn't be missed. After we get started, if you find it works out satisfactorily, we can procure the rest of it. That will certainly cause a disturbance, but it may be necessary. Half of it? interrupted Duquesne. You haven't one-twentieth of it here. When I saw it in the Bureau, Seaton had about five hundred milliliters, over a pint of it. I wonder if you're double-crossing me again. No, you're not, he continued, paying no attention to the other's protestations of innocence. "'You're paying me too much to want to block me now. "'The crook you sent out to get the stuff turned in only this much. "'Do you suppose he is holding out on us?' "'No, you know Perkins and his methods.' "'He missed the main bottle then.' "'That's where your methods make me tired. "'When I want anything done, I believe in doing it myself. "'Then I know it's done right.' "'As to what I suggest, that's easy. "'I will take three or four of Perkins's gunmen tonight. "'We'll go out there and raid the place. "'We'll shoot Seton and anyone else who gets in the way. "'We'll dynamite the safe and take their solution, "'plans, notes, money, and anything else we want.' "'No, no, doctor. That's too crude altogether. "'If we have to do that, let it be only as a last resort.' "'I say do it first. Then we know we will get results. I tell you, I'm afraid of pussyfooting and gumshoeing around Seaton and Crane. I used to think that Seaton was easy, but he seems to have developed greatly in the last few weeks, and Crane never was anybody's fool. Together, they make a combination hard to beat. Brute force, applied without warning, is our best bet, and there's no danger, you know that. We've got away clean with lots of worse stuff. It's always dangerous, and we could wink at such tactics only after everything else has failed. Why not work it out from this solution we have, and then quietly get the rest of it? After we have it worked out, Seaton might get into an accident on his motorcycle, and we could prove by the state of development of our plans that we discovered it long ago. Because developing that stuff is highly dangerous as you have found out, even Seaton wouldn't have been alive now if he hadn't had a lot of luck at the start. Then, too, it would take too much time. Seaton has already developed it, you see. I haven't been asleep, and I know what he has done, just as well as you do. And why should we go through all the slow and dangerous experimental work when we can get their notes and plans as well as not? There's bound to be trouble anyway when we steal all their solution.' even though they haven't missed this little bit of it yet, and it might as well come now as any other time. The corporation is amply protected, and I am still a government chemist. Nobody even suspects that I am in on this deal. I will never see you except after hours and in private, and will never come near your office. We will be so cautious that, even if anyone should get suspicious, they can't possibly link us together." and until they do link us together, we are all safe. No, Brookings, a raid in force is the only sure and safe way. What is more natural than a burglary of a rich man's house? It will be a simple affair. The police will stir around for a few days, then it will all be forgotten, and we can go ahead. Nobody will suspect anything except Crane, if he is alive, and he won't be able to do anything. So the argument raged. Brookings was convinced that Duquesne was right in wanting to get possession of all the solution, and also of the working notes and plans, but he would not agree to the means suggested, holding out for quieter and more devious but less actionable methods. Finally, he ended the argument with a flat refusal to countenance the raid, and the scientist was forced to yield, although he declared that they would have to use his methods in the end and that it would save time, money, and perhaps lives, if they were used first. Brookings then took from his pocket his wireless and called Perkins. He told him of the larger bottle of solution, instructing him to secure it, and to bring back all plans, notes, and other material he could find which in any way pertained to the matter at hand. Then, after promising Duquesne to keep him informed of developments, and giving him an instrument similar to the one he himself carried, Brookings took his leave. Seaton had worked from early morning until late at night, but had rigorously kept his promise to Dorothy. He had slept seven or eight hours every night, and called upon her regularly, returning from visits with even keener zest for his work. Late in the afternoon, upon the day of the explosion, Seaton stepped into Crane's shop with a mass of notes in his hand. Well, Mart, I've got it. Some of it, at least. The power is just what we figured it. So immensely large as to be beyond belief. I have found, first, that it is a practically irresistible pull along the axis of the treated wire or bar. It is apparently focused at infinity, as nearby objects are not affected. Second, I have studied two of the borderline regions of current we discussed. I have found that in one the power is liberated as a similar attractive force but is focused upon the first object in line with the axis of the bar. As long as the current is applied it remains focused upon that object no matter what comes between. In the second borderline condition the power is liberated as a terrific repulsion. Third, that the copper is completely transformed into available energy, there being no heat whatever liberated. Fourth, most important of all, that the X acts only as a catalyst for the copper and is not itself consumed, so that an infinitesimally thin coating is all that is required. "'You certainly have found out a great deal about it,' replied Crane, who had been listening with the closest attention." a look of admiration upon his face. You have all the essential facts right there. Now we can go ahead and put in the details, which will finish up the plans completely. Also, one of those points solves my hardest problem, that of getting back to the Earth after we lose sight of it. We can make a small bar in the borderline condition and focus it upon the Earth. And we can use that repulsive property to ward off any meteorites which may come too close to us. That's right. I never thought of using those points for anything. I found them out, incidentally, and merely mentioned them as interesting facts. I have a model of the main bar built, though, that will lift me into the air and pull me around. Want to see it work? I certainly do. As they were going out to the landing field, Shiro called to them, and they turned back to the house, learning that Dorothy and her father had just arrived. "'Hello, boys,' Dorothy said, bestowing her radiant smile upon them both, as Seaton seized her hand. "'Dad and I came out to see that you were taking care of yourselves, and to see what you were doing. Are visitors allowed?' "'No,' replied Seaton promptly. "'All visitors are barred. Members of the firm and members of the family, however, are not classed as visitors.' "'You came at the right time,' said Crane, smiling. "'Dick has just finished a model, "'and was about to demonstrate it to me when you arrived. "'Come with us and watch the. "'I object,' interrupted Seaton. "'It is a highly undignified performance as yet. "'And?' "'Objection overruled,' interposed the lawyer decisively. "'You are too young and impetuous to have any dignity. "'Therefore, any performance not undignified,' Would be impossible a priori. The demonstration will proceed. Laughing merrily, the four made their way to the testing shed, in front of which seaton donned a heavy leather harness, buckled about his shoulders, body, and legs, to which were attached numerous handles, switches, boxes, and other pieces of apparatus. He snapped the switch which started the Telsa coil in the shed and pressed a button on an instrument in his hand, attached to his harness by a small steel cable. Instantly, there was a creak of straining leather, and he shot vertically into the air for perhaps a hundred feet, where he stopped and remained motionless for a few moments. Then the watchers saw him point his arm and dart in the direction in which he pointed. By merely pointing, apparently, he changed his direction at will, going up and down, forward and backward, describing circles and loops and figures of eight. After a few minutes of this display, he descended, slowing abruptly as he neared the ground and making an easy landing. There, O beauteous lady and esteemed sirs, he began, with a low bow and a sweeping flourish, when there was a snap and he was jerked sideways off his feet. In bowing, his cumbersome harness had pressed the controlling switch, and the instrument he held in his hand, which contained the power plant, or bar, had torn itself loose from its buckle. Instead of being within easy reach of his hand, it was over six feet away, and was dragging him helplessly after it, straight toward the high stone wall. But only momentarily was he helpless, his keen mind discovering a way out of the predicament even as he managed to scramble to his feet in spite of the rapid pace. Throwing his body sideways and reaching out his long arm as far as possible toward the bar, he succeeded in swinging it around, so that he was running back toward the party and the spacious landing field. Dorothy and her father were standing motionless, staring at Seton, the former with terror in her eyes, the latter in blank amazement. Crane had darted to the switch controlling the coil, and was reaching for it when Seton passed them. "'Don't touch that switch,' he yelled. "'I'll catch that thing yet.' At this evidence that Seaton still thought himself master of the situation, Crane began to laugh, though he still kept his hand near the controlling switch. Dorothy, relieved of her fear for her lover's safety, could not help but join him. So ludicrous were Seaton's antics. The bar was straight out in front of him, about five feet above the ground, going somewhat faster than a man could run it turned now to the right, now to the left, as his weight was thrown to one side or the other. Seaton dragged along like a small boy, trying to hold a runaway calf by the tail, was covering the ground in prodigious leaps and bounds, at the same time pulling himself up, hand over hand, to the bar in front of him. He soon reached it, seized it in both hands, again darted into the air, and descended lightly near the others, who were rocking with laughter. "'I said it would be undignified,' chuckled Seaton, rather short of breath, but I didn't know just how much so it was going to be. Dorothy tucked her fingers into his hand. "'Are you hurt anywhere, Dick?' "'Not a bit. He led me a great chase, though.' "'I was scared to death, until you told Martin to let the switch alone. But it was funny, then. I hadn't noticed your resemblance to a jumping jack before.' "'Won't you do it again sometime and let us take a movie of it?' "'That was as good as any show in town, Dick,' said the lawyer, wiping his eyes. "'But you must be more careful. "'Next time it might not be funny at all.' "'There will be no next time for this rig,' replied Seaton. "'This is merely to show us that our ideas are all right. "'The next trip will be in a full-scale, completely equipped boat.' "'It was perfectly wonderful,' declared Dorothy.' I know this first flight of yours will be a turning point or something in history. I don't pretend to understand how you did it. The sight of you standing still up there in the air made me wonder if I were really awake, even though I knew what to expect. But we wouldn't have missed it for worlds, would we, Dad? No, I'm very glad that we saw the first demonstration. The world has never before seen anything like it, and you two men will rank as two of the greatest discoverers. "'Seton, Will, you mean,' replied Crane uncomfortably. "'You know I didn't have anything to do with it.' "'It's nearly all yours,' denied Seton. "'Without your ideas, I would have lost myself in space in my first attempt.' "'You are both wrong,' said Vanneman. "'You, Martin, haven't enough imagination. "'And you, Dick, have altogether too much for either of you to have done this alone. "'The honor will be divided equally between you.' He turned to Crane as Dorothy and Seaton set out toward the house. "'What are you going to do with it commercially? Dick, of course, hasn't thought of anything except his space-car. Equally, of course, you have.' "'Yes. Knowing the general nature of the power and confident that Dick would control it, I have already drawn up sketches for a power-plant installation of five hundred thousand electrical horsepower, which will enable us to sell power for less than one-tenth of a cent per kilowatt-hour, and still return 20% annual dividends. However, the power plant comes after the flyer. Why? Why not build the power plant first, and take the pleasure trip afterwards? There are several reasons. The principal one is that Dick and I would rather be off exploring new worlds, while the other members of the Seaton Crane Company, engineers, build the power plant. During the talk, The men had reached the house, into which the others had disappeared some time before. Upon Crane's invitation, Vaneman and his daughter stayed to dinner, and Dorothy played for a while upon Crane's wonderful violin. The rest of the evening was spent in animated discussion of the realization of Seton's dreams of flying without wings and beyond the supporting atmosphere. Seton and Crane did their best to explain to the non-technical visitors how such flight was possible. "'Well, I'm beginning to understand it a little,' said Dorothy finally. "'In plain language, it's like a big magnet or something, but different. "'Is that it?' "'That's it exactly,' Seaton assured her. "'What are you going to call it?' "'It isn't like anything else it ever was. "'Already this evening you have called it a bus, a boat, a kite, "'a starhound, a wagon, an aerial fliver, a sky-chariot, a space-eating wampus. And I don't know what else. Even Martin has called it a vehicle, a ship, a bird, and a shell. What is its real name?' "'I don't know. It hasn't got any that I know of. What would you suggest, Dotty? "'I don't know what general name should be applied to them, but for this one, there is only one possible name. The Skylark.' "'Exactly right, Dorothy,' said Crane. "'Fine,' cried Seaton and you shall christen it, Dotty, with a big Florence flask full of absolute vacuum. I christen you the Skylark. Bang!' As the guests were leaving at a late hour, Feynman said, "'Oh, yes, I bought an extra clarion as we came out. It tells a wild tale of an explosion so violent that science cannot explain it. I don't suppose it is true, but it may make interesting reading for you two scientific sharps. Good night.' Seaton accompanied Dorothy to the car, bidding her a more intimate farewell on the way. When he returned, Crane, with an unusual expression of concern on his face, handed him the paper without a word. "'What's up, old man? Something in it?' he asked as he took the paper. He fell silent as he read the first words and after he had read the entire article, he said slowly, "'True, beyond a doubt. Even a clarion reporter couldn't imagine that. It's all intra-atomic energy, all right. Some poor devil trying our stunt without my horseshoe in his pocket.' "'Think, Dick. Something is wrong somewhere. You know that two people did not discover X at the same time. The answer is that somebody stole your idea.' but the idea is worthless without the X. You say that the stuff is extremely rare. Where did they get it?' "'That's right, Mart. I never thought of that. The stuff is extremely rare. I am supposed to know something about rare metals, and I never heard of it before. There isn't even a gap in the periodic system in which it belongs. I would bet a hat that we have every milligram known to the world at present.' "'Well, then,' said the practical crane, "'we had better see whether or not we have all we started with.' Asking Shiro to bring the large bottle from the vault, he opened the living-room safe and brought forth the small vial. The large bottle was still nearly full, the seal upon it unbroken. The vial was apparently exactly as Seaton had left it after he had made his bars. "'Our stuff seems to be all there,' said Crane. "'It looks as though someone else has discovered it also.' "'I don't believe it,' said Seaton. "'Their position's now reversed. "'It's altogether too rare.' He scanned both bottles narrowly. "'I can tell by taking the densities,' he added, "'and ran up to the laboratory, "'returning with a Westfall balance in his hand. "'After testing both solutions, he said slowly, "'Well, the mystery is solved.' The large bottle has a specific gravity of 1.80, as it had when I prepared it. That, in the vial, reads only 1.41. Somebody has burglarized this safe and taken almost half of the solution, filling the vial up with colored water. The stuff is so strong that I probably never would have noticed the difference. But who could it have been? Search me. But it's nothing to worry about now, anyway. "'because whoever it was is gone, where he'll never do it again. "'He's taken the solution with him, too, so that nobody else can get it.' "'I wish I were sure of that, Dick. "'The man who tried to do the research work is undoubtedly gone. "'But who is back of him?' "'Nobody, probably. Who'd want to be?' "'To borrow your own phrase, Dick, "'Scott chirped it when he called you nobody home.' For a man, with your brains, you have the least sense of anybody I know. You know that this thing is worth, as a power project alone, thousands of millions of dollars, and that there are dozens of big concerns who would cheerfully put us both out of the way for a thousandth of that amount. The question is not to find one concern who might be backing a thing like that, but to pick out the one who is backing it. After thinking deeply for a few moments, he went on. THE IDEA WAS TAKEN FROM YOUR DEMONSTRATION IN THE BUREAU, EITHER BY AN EYEWITNESS OR BY SOMEONE WHO HEARD ABOUT IT AFTERWARD. PROBABLY THE FORMER. EVEN THOUGH IT FAILED, ONE MAN SAW THE POSSIBILITIES. WHO WAS THAT MAN? WHO WAS THERE? OH, A LOT OF FELLOWS WERE THERE. SCOTT, SMITH, PENFIELD, DUQUESNE, ROBERTS. QUITE A BUNCH OF THEM. LET'S SEE. SCOTT HASN'T ENOUGH BRAINS TO DO ANYTHING. Smith doesn't know anything about anything except Amines. Penfield is a pure scientist who wouldn't even quote an authority without asking permission. Duquesne is... Hmm. Duquesne? He? I? Yes, Duquesne. I have heard of him. He's the big black fellow, about your own size. He has the brains, the ability, and the inclination, has he not? Well, I wouldn't want to say that. I don't know him very well, and personal dislike is no ground at all for suspicion, you know. Enough to warrant investigation. Is there anyone else who might have reasoned it out as you did, and as Duquesne possibly could? Not that I remember, but we can count Duquesne out, anyway, because he called me up this afternoon about some notes on gallium. So he is still in the Bureau. Besides, he wouldn't let anyone else investigate it if he got it. He would do it himself. I don't think he would have blown himself up. I never did like him very well, personally. He's such a cold, inhumane son of a fish. But you've got to hand it to him for ability. He's probably the best man in the world today, on that kind of thing. No, I do not think that we will count him out yet. He may have had nothing to do with it, but we will have him investigate it, nevertheless, and will guard against future visitors here." Turning to the telephone, he called the private number of a well-known detective. "'Prescott, Crane speaking. "'Sorry to get you out of bed, "'but I should like to have a complete report "'upon Dr. Mark C. Duquesne "'of the Rare Metals Laboratory as soon as possible. "'Every detail for the last two weeks, "'every move and every thought if possible. "'Please keep a good man on him until further notice. "'I wish you would send two or three guards out here right away, tonight.' men you can trust, who will stay awake. Thanks. Good night." End of Chapter Four Direct Action Seaton and Crane spent some time developing the object compass. Crane made a number of these instruments, mounted in gimbals, so that the delicate needles were free to turn in any direction whatever. They were mounted upon jeweled bearings, but bearings made of such great strength that Seaton protested. "'What's the use, Mart? You don't expect a watch to be treated like a stone crusher. The needle weighs less than half a gram. Why mount it as though it weighed twenty pounds?' "'To be safe. Remember, the acceleration the Lark will be capable of, and also that on some other worlds we hope to visit this needle will weigh more than it does here. That's right, Mart, I never thought of that. Anyway, we can't be too safe to suit me. When the compasses were done, and the power through them had been adjusted to one thousandth of a watt, the lowest they could maintain with accuracy, they focused each instrument upon one of a set of most carefully weighed glass beads, ranging in size from a pinhead up to a large marble and had the beads taken across the country by Shiro in order to test the sensitivity and accuracy of the new instruments. The first test was made at a distance of one hundred miles, the last at nearly three thousand. They found, as they had expected, that from the weight of the object and the time it took the needle to come to rest after being displaced from its line, by a gentle tap of the finger they could easily calculate the distance from the compass to the object. This fact pleased Crane immensely, as it gave him a sure means of navigation in space. The only objection to its use in measuring earthly distances was its extreme delicacy. The needle focused upon the smallest bead in the lot at a distance of 3,000 miles, coming to rest in a little more than one second. The question of navigation solved, the two next devoted themselves to perfecting the explosive bullet, as Seaton called it. From his notes and equations, Seaton calculated the weight of copper necessary to exert the explosive force of one pound of nitroglycerin, and weighed out, on the most delicate assay balance made, various fractions and multiples of this amount of the treated copper, while Crane fitted up the bullets of automatic pistol cartridges to receive the charges and to explode them on impact. They placed their blueprints and working notes in the safe, as usual, taking with them only those notes dealing with the object compass and the explosive bullet, upon which they were still working. No one, except Shiro, knew that the original tracings from which the blueprints had been made, and their final classified notes, were always kept in the vault. They cautioned him and the three guards to keep a close watch until they returned. Then they set out in the biplane to try out the new weapon in a lonely place where the exploding shells could do no damage. They found that the explosive came fully up to expectations. The smallest charge they had prepared, fired by crane at a great stump, a full hundred yards away from the bare, flat-topped knoll, that had afforded them a landing-place, tore it boldly from the ground and reduced it to splinters, while the force of the explosion made the two men stagger. "'She sure is big medicine,' laughed Seaton. "'Wonder what a real one will do.' And, drawing his pistol, he inserted a cartridge carrying a much heavier charge. "'Better be careful with the big ones,' cautioned Crane. "'What are you going to shoot at?' "'That rock over there.' pointing to a huge boulder half a mile away across the small valley. "'Want to bet me a dinner? I can't hit it?' "'No, you forgot, that I saw you win the pistol trophy of the district.'" The pistol cracked, and when the bullet reached its destination, the great stone was obliterated in a vast ball of flame. After a moment, there was a deafening report, a crash as though the world were falling to pieces. Both men were hurled violently backward, stumbling and falling flat. Picking themselves up, they looked across the valley at the place where the boulder had stood, to see only an immense cloud of dust which slowly blew away, revealing a huge hole in the ground. They were silent a moment, awed by the frightful power they had loosed. Well, Mart, Seaton broke the silence. I'll say, those one milligram loads are plenty big enough. If that had been something coming after us, whether any possible other-world animal, or foreign battleship, or the mythical Great Sea Serpent himself, it'd be a good Indian now. Yes? No? Yes. When we have to use the heavier charges, we must use long-range rifles. Have you had enough demonstration, or do you want to shoot some more?" I've had enough, thanks. That last rock I bounced off of was no pillow. I'll tell the world. Besides, it looks as though I've busted a leg or two off our noble steed with my shot, and we may have to walk back home. An examination of the plane, which had been moved many feet and almost overturned by the force of the explosion, revealed no damage that they could not repair on the spot, and dusk saw them speeding through the air toward the distant city. In response to a summons from his chief, Perkins silently appeared in Brookings' office, without his usual complacent smile. "'Haven't you done anything yet, after all this time?' demanded the magnate. "'We're getting tired of this delay.' "'I can't help it, Mr. Brookings,' replied the subordinate. "'They've got detectives from Prescott's all over the place. Our best men have been trying ever since the day of the explosion, but can't do a thing without resorting to violence. I went out there myself and looked them over without being seen. There isn't a man there with a record, and I haven't been able so far to get anything on any one of them that we can use as a handle. No, Prescott's men are hard to do anything with. But can't you? Brookings paused significantly. I was coming to that. I thought one of them might be seen, and I talked to him a little over the phone, but I couldn't talk loud enough without consulting you. I mentioned ten, but he yelled out for twenty-five. Said he wouldn't consider it at all, but he wants to quit Prescott and go in the business for himself. Go ahead on twenty-five. We want to get action," said Brookings, as he wrote out an order on the cashier for twenty-five thousand dollars in small to medium bills. That is cheap enough, considering what Duquesne's rough stuff would probably cost. Report tomorrow about four over our private phone. No, I'll come down to the cafe. It's safer. The place referred to was Perkins Cafe, a high-class restaurant on Pennsylvania Avenue, heavily patronized by the diplomatic, political, financial, and sporting circles of upper-class Washington. It was famous for its discreet waiters and for the absolutely private rooms. Many of its patrons knew of its unique telephone service, in which each call went through such a devious system of relays that any attempt to trace it was hopeless. They knew that while the Perkins would not knowingly lend itself to any violation of the law, it was an entirely safe and thoroughly satisfactory place in which to conduct a business of the most secret and confidential character, a place from which one could enjoy personal conversations with persons to whom he wished to remain invisible and untraceable, a place which had never been known to leak. For these reasons, it was really the diplomatic and political center of the country, and over its secret wires had gone, in guarded language, messages that would have rocked the world had they gone astray. It was recognized that the place was occasionally, by its very nature, used for illegal purposes, but it was Such a political, financial, and diplomatic necessity that it carried a hands off sign. It was never investigated by Congress and never raided by the police. Hundreds of telephone calls were handled daily. A man would come in, order something served in a private room, leave a name at the desk, and say that he was expecting a call. There the affair ended. The telephone operators were hand picked, men of very short memories carefully trained never to look at a face and never to remember a name or a number. Although the precaution was unnecessary, this shortness of memory was often encouraged by bills of various denominations. No one except Perkins and the heads of the great World Steel Corporation knew that the urbane and polished proprietor of the café was a criminal of the blackest kind, whose liberty and life itself were dependent upon the will of the corporation, or that the restaurant was especially planned and maintained as a blind for its underground activities, or that Perkins was holding a position which suited him exactly, and which he would not have given up for wealth or glory, that of being the guiding genius who planned nefarious things for the men higher up, and saw to it that they were carried out by the men lower down. He was in constant personal touch with his superiors, but in order to avoid any chance of betrayal, he never saw his subordinates personally. Not only were they entirely ignorant of his identity, but all possible means of their tracing him had been foreseen and guarded against. He called them on the telephone, but they never called him. The only possible way in which any of his subordinates could get in touch with him was by means of the wonderful wireless telephone already referred to, developed by a drug-crazed genius who had died shortly after it was perfected. It was a tiny instrument, no larger than a watch, but of practically unlimited range. The controlling central station of the few instruments in existence from which any instrument could be cut out, changed in tune, or totally destroyed at will, was in Perkins's office safe. A man entrusted with an unusually important job would receive from an unknown source an instrument with directions sufficient for its use. As soon as the job was done, he would find, upon attempting to use the telephone, that its interior was so hopelessly wrecked that not even the most skilled artisan could reproduce what it had once been. At four o'clock, Brookings was ushered into the private office of the master criminal, who was plainly ill at ease. I've got to report another failure, Mr. Brookings. It's nobody's fault. Just one of those things that couldn't be helped. I handled this myself. Our man left the door unlocked and kept the others busy in another room. I had just started to work when Crane's Japanese servant, who was supposed to be asleep, appeared upon the scene. If I hadn't known something about Jiu-Jitsu myself, he'd have broken my neck. As it was, I barely got away, with the Jap and all three guards close behind me. "'I'm not interested in excuses,' broke in the magnate, angrily. "'We'll have to turn it over to Duquesne, after all, unless you get something done, and get it done quick. Can't you get to that Jap some way?' "'Certainly I can. I never yet saw the man who couldn't be reached, one way or another. I've had Silk Humphreys, the best fixer in the business, working on him all day.' and he'll be neutral before night. If the long green won't quiet him, and I never saw a Jap refuse it yet, a lead pipe will. Silk hasn't reported yet, but I expect to hear from him any minute now. Through our man out there. As he spoke, the almost inaudible buzzer in his pocket gave a signal. There he is now, said Perkins, as he took out his wireless instrument. You might listen in and hear what he has to say. Brookings took out his own telephone and held it to his ear. "'Hello?' Perkins spoke roughly into the tiny transmitter. "'What have you got on your chest?' "'Your foot's slipped on the Jap,' the stranger replied. He crabbed the game right. Slats and the big fellow put all the stuff into the box, told us to watch it until they get back tonight. They may be late. Then went off in Slats' ship to test something. Couldn't find out what. Silk tackled the yellow boy and went up to fifty grand, but the Jap couldn't see him at all. Silk started to argue, and the Jap didn't do a thing but lay him out cold. This afternoon, while the Jap was out in the grounds, three stick-up men jumped him. He bumped one of them off with his hands, and the others with his gat, one of those big automatics that throw a slug like a cannon. None of us knew he had it. That's all. "'except that I am quitting Prescott right now. "'Anything else I can do for you, "'whoever you are?' "'No, your job's done.' The conversation closed. Perkins pressed a switch, which reduced the interior of the spy's wireless instrument to a fused mass of metal, and Brookings called Duquesne on the telephone. "'I would like to talk to you,' he said. "'Shall I come there, "'or would you rather come to my office?' "'I'll come there,' They're watching this house. They have one man in front and one man in back, a couple of detectaphones in my rooms here, and have coupled onto this phone. Don't worry, he continued calmly, as the other made an exclamation of dismay. Talk ahead as loud as you please. They can't hear you. Do you think that those poor, ignorant flat feet can show me anything about electricity? I'd shoot a jolt along their wires that would burn their ears off, "'if it weren't my cue to act the innocent and absorbed scientist. "'As it is, their instruments are all registering dense silence. "'I am in deep study right now and can't be disturbed. "'Can you get out?' "'Certainly. I have the same private entrance down beside the house wall "'and the same tunnel I used before. "'I'll see you in about fifteen minutes.' In Brookings' office, Duquesne told of the constant surveillance over him. "'They suspect me on general principles, I think,' he continued. "'They are apparently trying to connect me with somebody. I don't think they suspect you at all, and they won't, unless they get some better methods. I have devices fitted up to turn the lights off and on, raise and lower the windows, and even cast shadows at certain times.' The housekeeper knows that when I go into my library after dinner, I have retired to study, and that it is as much as anyone's life is worth to disturb me. Also, I am well known to be firmly fixed in my habits, so it's easy to fool those detectives. Last night I went out and watched them. They hung around for a couple hours after my lights went out, then walked off together. I can dodge them any time, and have all my nights free, without their ever suspecting anything. Are you free tonight? Yes, the time switches are all set, and as long as I get back before daylight, so they can see me get up and go to work, it will be all right." Brookings told him briefly of the failure to secure the solution and the plans, and the death of the three men sent to silence Shiro, and of all the other developments. Duquesne listened, his face impassive. "'Well,' he said as Brookings ceased, "'I thought you would bullet, but not quite so badly. "'But there's no use whining now. "'I can't use my original plan of attack in force "'as they are prepared and might be able to stand us off "'until the police could arrive.' "'He thought deeply for a time, then said intensely, "'If I go into this thing, Brookings, "'I am in absolute command.' Everything goes as I say. Understand? Yes, it's up to you now. All right. I think I've got it. Can you get me a Curtis biplane in an hour? And a man about six feet tall, who weighs about 160 pounds. I want to drive the plane myself, and have the man, dressed in full leathers and hood, in the passenger seat, shot so full of chloroform or dope that he will be completely unconscious for at least two hours. "'Easy. We can get you any kind of plane you want in an hour, and Perkins can find a man of that description who would be glad to have a dream at that price.' "'But what's the idea?' "'Pardon me. I shouldn't have asked that,' he added, as the Saturnine chemist shot him a black look from beneath his heavy brows. Well within the hour, Duquesne drove up to a private aviation field and found awaiting him a curtis biplane whose attendant jumped into an automobile and sped away as he approached he quickly donned a heavy leather suit similar to the one seaton always wore in the air and drew the hood over his face then after a searching look at the lean form of the unconscious man in the other seat he was off the plane climbing swiftly under his expert hand He took a wide circle to the west and north. Soon, Shiro and the two guards, hearing the roar of an approaching airplane, looked out and saw what they supposed to be Crane's biplane coming down with terrific speed in an almost vertical nosedive, as though the driver were in an extremity of haste. Flattening out just in time to avert destruction, it taxied up the field almost to the house. The watcher saw a man recognizable as Seaton by his suit and his unmistakable physique stand up and wave both arms frantically, heard him shout hoarsely, "'All of you, out here!' saw him point to Crane's apparently lifeless form and slump down in his seat. All three ran out to help the unconscious aviators, but as they reached the machine, there were three silenced reports, and the three men fell to the ground. Duquesne leaped lightly out of the machine and looked narrowly at the bodies at his feet. He saw that the two detectives were dead, but found with some chagrin that the Japanese still showed faint signs of life. He half drew his pistol to finish the job, but observing that the victim was probably fatally wounded, he thrust it back into its holster and went on into the house. Drawing on rubber gloves, he rapidly blew the door off the safe with nitroglycerin, and took out everything it contained. He set aside a roll of blueprints, numerous notebooks, some money and other valuables, and a small vial of solution. But of the larger bottle there was no trace. He then ransacked the entire house, from cellar to attic, with no better success. So cleverly was the entrance to the vault concealed in the basement wall that he failed to discover it. I might have expected this of Crane, he thought, half aloud, after all the warning that fool Brookings persisted in giving him. This is the natural result of his nonsense. The rest of the solution is probably in the safest safe-deposit vault in the United States. But I've got their plans and notes, and enough solution for the present. I'll get the rest of it when I want it. There's more than one way to kill any cat that ever lived. Returning to the machine... Duquesne calmly stepped over the bodies of the detectives and the unconscious form of the dying Japanese, who was uttering an occasional groan. He started the engine and took his seat. There was an increasing roar as he opened the throttle, and soon he descended upon the field from which he had set out. He noted that there was a man in an automobile, some distance from the hangar, evidently waiting to take care of the plane, and his still unconscious passenger. Rapidly resuming his ordinary clothing, he stepped into his automobile, and was soon back in his own rooms, poring over the blueprints and notebooks. Seaton and Crane both felt that something was wrong when they approached the landing field, and saw that the landing lights were not burning, as they always were kept lighted whenever the plane was abroad after dark. By the dim light of the old moon, Crane made a bumpy landing and they sprang from their seats and hastened toward the house. As they neared it, they heard a faint moan and turned toward the sound. Seaton whipped out his electric torch with one hand and his automatic pistol with the other. At the sight that met their eyes, however, he hastily replaced the weapon and bent over Shiro, a touch assuring him that the other two were beyond the reach of help. Silently, they picked up the injured man and carried him gently into his own room, barely glancing at the wrecked safe on the way. Seaton applied first-aid treatment to the ghastly wound in Shiro's head, which both men supposed to be certainly fatal, while Crane called a noted surgeon, asking him to come at once. He then telephoned the coroner, the police, and finally Prescott, with whom he held a long conversation. Having done all in their power for the unfortunate man, they stood at his bedside, their anger all the more terrible for the fact that it was silent. Seton stood with every muscle tense. He was seething with rage, his face purple and his eyes almost emitting sparks. His teeth clenched until the muscles of his jaw stood out in bands and lumps. His right hand, white-knuckled, gripped the butt of his pistol, while under his left, the brass rail of the bed slowly bent under the intensity of his unconscious, muscular effort. Crane stood still, apparently impassive, but with his face perfectly white and with every feature stern and cold, as though cut from marble. Seton was the first to speak. "'Mart,' he gritted, his voice husky with fury. "'A man who would leave another man to die after giving him that ain't a man. He's a thing.' If Shiro dies, and we can ever find out who did it, I'll shoot him with the biggest explosive charge I've got. No, I won't either. That'd be too sudden. I'll take him apart with my bare hands. We will find him, Dick, Crane replied, in a level, deadly voice, entirely unlike his usual tone. That is one thing money can do. We will get him, if money, influence, and detectives can do it. The tension was relieved by the arrival of the surgeon and his two nurses, who set to work with the machine-like rapidity and precision of their highly specialized craft. After a few minutes, the work completed, the surgeon turned to the two men who had been watching him so intently, with a smile upon his clean, shaven face. "'Merely a scalp wound, Mr. Crane,' he stated. "'He should recover consciousness in an hour or so.' then, breaking in upon Seton's exclamation, it looks much worse than it really is. The bullet glanced off the skull instead of penetrating it, stunning him by the force of the blow. There are no indications that the brain is affected in any way, and while the affected area of the scalp is large, it is a clean wound and should heal rapidly. He will probably be up and around in a couple of days, and by the time his hair grows again, he will not be able to find a scar." As he took his leave, the police and coroner arrived. After making a thorough investigation, in which they learned what had been stolen, and shrewdly deduced the manner in which the robbery had been accomplished, they departed, taking with them the bodies. They were authorized by Crane to offer a reward of one million dollars for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the murderer. After everyone except the nurses had gone, Crane showed them the rooms they were to occupy while caring for the wounded man. As the surgeon had foretold, Shiro soon recovered consciousness. After telling his story, he dropped into a deep sleep, and Seaton and Crane, after another telephone conference with Prescott, retired for the rest of the night. End of Chapter 5